Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
105.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Ozzie, kicking things off for us tonight. French saxophonist, keyboardist, and composer Laurent Bardin with Tire de Douce, track called Hymn au Soleil, Sun Hymn. That is the title track to a forthcoming album due out in 2022. And uh, really great stuff. Love the jazz organ. Big into that. Uh, got a busy show tonight this is the uh semi-annual conversation with jeff chipwa from the uh canadian electroacoustic community discussing the jeu de temps time to play uh composition competition we didn't talk last year i believe but uh caught up on a few things I've had them on in the past and as with previous years we will be featuring the winner of the composition competition after the interview and if you tune into Expansive Prairie Skies next Tuesday night, uh, Wednesday morning, uh, I'll have the entire slate of winners. There are uh, several compositions that'll take up pretty much the entirety of that broadcast. Uh, so if you want to hear more, definitely check that out live or uh, as a podcast. Coming up next, Ski Fall featuring Bad, Bad, Not Good, a new single called Break of Dawn. And then we'll talk to Jeff Chippewa. yourself together and just know that you are in yourself and that's the strength that you have this life that you live that is given the greatest gift you know like the morning a 
comes dawn and it's the sweetest thing You know the cycle returns and returns again Good morning Regular listeners to this show know there are a few traditions, uh, among them playing Dave Cook's a turkey at Christmas time. But uh, one of the other annual traditions is having Jeff Chippewa from the Acadian Electroacoustic Community on to talk about Jeu de Temps, time to play. And he is back to discuss it. How's it going, Jeff? Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. And yourself? I'm all right. Uh, the, uh, the cold and gray of Berlin has settled in for the winter, so... And and not just the uh, the gray architecture of like the the concrete uh, buildings. You mean? No, no. A few months of gray. Uh, yeah, we have ahead of us. Yeah. Um. So th- this. Uh. I mean, it's it's been a while since we talked, and uh, certainly in, in the past, you know, kind of talked about where things were at with the CEC. What well, what's what's the latest within the CEC now? Um. We have a couple of new uh new developments actually with JTTP. Some uh, very interesting new uh, two new components basically so we still have the same structure of um, a juried competition so people who are young and or emerging composers and sound artists electroacoustic artists who are from or living in Canada can submit their works each year and there's a juried competition for that from the 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 jury we uh, tally the scores and the the comments and everything and, and there are five winners that are selected who receive prizes, um, CDs, books, uh, memberships, um, online subscriptions, as well as some cash prizes for the first to third place. And we support all of the artists uh, uh, continually by having all of the works that were submitted presented on the uh, on the web pages for JTTP. So that's at jttp.sonus.ca. For the, the winners, we continue uh, promoting them throughout the year through broadcasts such as this um, in Canada as well as outside of Canada. And um, also since, 2000 and, uh, since JTP 2015, we have a special project component that presents the five winning works in concert somewhere uh, around the world. Uh, we started in Portugal and we were, we've also been to uh, Centro Mexicano por, Mexicano por la... Musica y las Artes Sonoras in Mexico. We've been in Edmonton um, for the Sea of Sound Festival, um, Germany for um, the Contact Festival. So each year we have a different partner that presents the winning works in concert. And um, most of the, the uh, participants have been able to make it to the concert and pretend to present their own works. Um, so we have an just ongoing throughout the year. We keep doing as much as we can to to promote the works of the the, the composers who have won, as well as uh, just everyone who's involved in the project. So it's an ongoing promotional platform for young and emerging uh, electroacoustic artists. This year we have um, four new thematic awards, uh, which is uh, 
really changed the it's something that's that's helping us address the perception that it's an acousmatic competition that it's mm -hmm. primarily for uh academic electroacoustic work that's never been the case but it's we've had this problem of of the perception of it from the outside and these new awards are, are really helping us articulate the fact that the, the the project is open to to all types of practices within uh the electroacoustic milieu so we have the Hildegard Westerkamp Award for Soundscape and Sound Installation, the Michelin Coulomb Messemarcou Award for Self-Identified Female or Non-Binary Electroacoustic Artists, the Jean Pichet Award for Video Music, New Music, uh, sorry, Video Music, New Media and Creative Coding, and the Martin Gottfried and Martin Bartlett Award for Live Electroacoustic Practices. So four brand new uh, awards, those come with cash prizes, um, that have been made possible through a donation uh, by Kevin Austin, who is one of the legal co-founders of the of the uh, Canadian electroacoustic community. That's, now, was that something like he he desired to see these awards created, or like was it something where some support he provided opened up an opportunity to do this kind of thing? It's it's a, a kind of an, an auspicious convergence of a number of things. The 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 attempt on the CEC's part to 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 break out of this this um, this perception that it's an acousmatic competition, and uh, open it up to or, or or make it clearer to a larger you know group of people and, and to more broad communities that the the, pro the project is open to these different practices, not just uh, pure acousmatic, you know uh, what some some people might call high acousmatic art that it's open to people who are working in sound installation, people who are working in in, in glitch and hardware hacking, uh, various kinds of live practices, as well as video music. So, um, and Kevin Austin simply came to the board and proposed this idea of, uh, he proposed the, the, the sort of the, the starting point. So he initiated the, the process and proposed the initial starting point of the, um, after whom the, the, the new awards would be named as well as what the what the thematic was for each of the awards so we had some discussions the the, the board had discussions and and with the administration got back to kevin and, and sort of exchanged a little bit in this and and developed the uh what has come out as this year so this is the first time that we're, we're able to offer these prizes uh these awards um yeah and it's it's been received very positively and we noticed also that there was actually a a, a broader Sort of pool of, of entries this year than than has been the case in recent years. So it was very nice to see that that having an impact. In terms of impact for for the CEC, like what kind of links do you have to go through to find like jurors then in in these new avenues? Like, do you have to broaden your your jury pool to to figure out who's kind of best suited to determine the winners of these ones? Uh, to some extent, when we first started, um, um, when it, the first year that, that, that video music works were eligible for submission, we did have a couple comments from jury members who said that they weren't really equipped to to judge them. They didn't know how to approach them. Um, so essentially, there were there were a few a few jury members who simply didn't uh, didn't score those works. So they didn't put a mark at all. So it wouldn't it wouldn't have had an impact on the on the on the overall scoring, and. Video music is a bit more, uh, well, it's, it's much more well known within the community now. So it's not as, it's not the same problem it is for jurors today as it was, let's say, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but we have, in any case, independent of these new awards, we've been working on this for several years. Every couple of years, I go, th go through sort of a, 
a process of renewal within the jury pool and, and ask either board members or we have a, 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 a consultation group that we just can ask some questions to to get some feedback, some some external external perspectives on ideas we're developing or projects we're working on. And so we just ask every once in a while, hey, you know, send us in some names of some new people. Here's the kind of backgrounds that are maybe not well represented on the jury. Have you got any names for us? And we contact those people, invite them to the jury. Right. So uh, the, the I mean, because we usually feature the win winners of the Jeu de Temps, like you mentioned they uh, they've you've, you've collaborated to have you know some live performances and stuff some of these i'm curious in terms of like are there complexities or, or difficulties with live performances of these pieces like no i don't think no? so no the 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 two video music works that are amongst the uh prize winning and and and, and award recipients uh they would simply be played over the same sound system but then with additionally with the video that 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 it's integrated with it the music mm -hmm. is integrated with it. it's not a separate video and music component but it's a it's a it's intended to be presented as a single unit but the audio for that is typically performed over the same type of setup as you would um some of the other acquisitions pure audio pieces right so you're not having to necessarily add add too much to it beside like a screen to project the the, uh, the video component on exactly right. and for the one the one the third work that has a video component um it was presented as not as a video music, but as a as a um, uh, well, it was it was the work that won the uh, Gottfried and Bartlett Award for Live Electroacoustic Practices. So Marianne Bedaro's piece, she had a video of her actually doing the live performance. So um, it was it was produced. It was I believe it was her in a studio with a couple of cameras. And then she simply mixed the video and the audio together and submitted that as, as her, you know, she sent that in as, as her submission. Her work could be presented live, um, but it's interesting for people to see that she's actually performing it, that the, 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 the changes that happen in the piece over the course of, of its, its duration are a direct result of what she's doing during the performance of the piece, which is very different from the, the, the acousmatic pieces where if we see the person performing that in concert, we understand that it has to do with the, sp the spatialization, where they're positioning, um, how how you know how much they're sending to each of the, the speaker channels if they have a multi-channel setup. So it's interesting to see the video in her piece. Uh, it's not impossible to play it as an audio-only work, but it's it's kind of it's kind of against the principle of it. My in my view, because it's a it's meant to be seen as a as a live work. So. Um, I mean, we can always listen to, for example, improvised works that have been recorded, but there's 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 still always something missing for me when I when I listen to those kind of works. I'd I'd, I'd want to have seen it live. <laughs> so the video is kind of a halfway. The, the recording of her performing that piece that that she um, won the award with. Um, yeah, for me, it's a, it's an important component to the to the appreciation of the piece. So I have to imagine that that video is embedded or in some way linked on the CEC website in terms of, cause you said, you know, that these pieces live on the, the CEC site as well as, you know, in, in terms of as award winners. Exactly. Yeah. All yeah. of the works, not just the, the, the prize winning works and the award recipients, all of the works that were submitted are on the, the JTTB site. So if we go to jttb.sonus.ca, um, each of the years is listed there. And the first page that you go to has a list of all the, 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 the participants and submissions. And you have further pages if you want to just listen to the, the results. So the ones, the, the pieces who won prizes or awards, 
you can go to that page and the videos are embedded there. It's an important point because um, all of the works are also presented in sonus.ca, which is the CEC's online jukebox for electroacoustic practices. But the interface for that particular project doesn't allow at the moment, it's, we don't have it yet set up to be able to, to play videos. So if you wanna see the works with video from uh, JTTP, the only place to see them at the moment is on the, the JTTP web pages. Sure enough. Now we're going to feature the, the the award winners. What can you tell us about these individual uh, compositions? Like any kind of background on on them before we play them? Um, on the there, 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 I don't know. There's a lot of things I could. Be yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe a little <laughs> little bit about the artist uh, rather than the specific piece. Just about kind of like who who these people are. Yeah. Well, one thing that I, as I was, you know, going through the pieces again and, and uh, preparing for our, our, our talk here, um, the one thing that I did notice is that that kind of stood out for me this year is that uh, many of them are actually still only in a bachelor's degree. What we've had in the past is that it would be, be people who who are uh, either at the early start of their career, just out of school, just finished their masters, or completing a masters. And this year, actually, there there, there are quite a few people who are um, in the bachelor's degree when they compose these works. So. That's an indication of the, the, the growing strength of, of the work that's done by Canadian electroacoustic uh, artists today, mm. compared to only a few years ago. They're, they're much earlier in their, in their studies. Um, they master these things at a, at a much earlier stage in, the, in their, their career. So it's, it's really remarkable to see this. Yeah, that's um, super interesting to hear that like, they're kind of in more nascent por portion of their career and, and already kind of creating a you know exceptional works that are worthy of these awards yeah no no it's, it's really impressive and what we've seen in the past too i, I used to keep track of it but it's <laughs> there's, there's many many years to keep track of now we used to watch sort of where uh what other prizes that the the the, the artists would win you know we have the socan foundation for for um young composers um there's there's different you know different projects and 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 uh competitions that they will have potentially submitted their work to afterwards or in parallel to, to JTTP. So it was nice to see uh, that it, it, it fairly often happened that the, the same work was recognized by other bodies as well, which is a great thing for, for as you say, the, you know, for a, a, an artist in, at the sort of nation stage of their career. That's a, that's a phenomenal thing to have. Mm -hmm. They come from really uh, quite a different background. I mean, they're, they're, you know, many of the artists are from, they're not from, but they're, they're working in Montreal and that's, that's a reflection of you know the, the development of the scene in Montreal. But there are people from from all over. Um, there's uh, one person who was originally from France, but now living in Canada and working in Canada. Um, uh, one of the artists is uh, from Ottawa. One of them is from Southern Ontario, from London. Um, they're studying in the conservatory in Montreal, in University of Montreal, at Concordia University. Uh, but also in uh, University of Huddersfield, for example, in the UK. So they're, they're, yeah, you mentioned the Montreal, you know, scene being kind of particularly important to, to this, you know, but do you, can you discern differences? Like if someone like, you know, is studying in the UK, like, is there kind of like a different way of coming at it or like the output is slightly different? Like, like, can you identify kind of a region within a within a sonic structure if 
if I listen to the pieces today, that's not as possible as I think it was before, where you could really recognize the, the so-called schools of, of uh, composition. Mm. Um, this was a discussion, especially in the 90s, you know, whether there was a Montreal sound. Francis Domon wrote an article about that. Uh, is there a Quebec sound? Um, studios used to be the work that came out of studios used to be very reflective of the technologies that they that they had so if uh one studio was heavily digitized in the early early stages where where you know a lot of digital equipment was coming out the sound would be recognizable and you you, you would know which studios were working with those kind of technologies at the time mm. today so much is done with with um, software that that's used in all the different studios, uh, you know, similar software across all the studios. So the studio itself isn't necessarily, or the school where the studio is located, is not so much uh, an indicator of um, what the result, the, the sort of sonic result, is going to be. Of course, there's a difference if you have uh, uh, this or that teacher who's got this or that background and uh, this or that interests. For sure, that's going to impact the, the output. But somebody who's working in, in, I don't know, let's say the UK is still aware of what's happening in Quebec. They're still aware of, of, of what's happening in Vancouver, or, or they're still aware of what, what, what's happening in the United States electroacoustic scene. Or, so they'll, they're more aware of that, and that's going to influence their work as well and, and make it sort of, um, yes, less, less locally um, recognizable, I guess. Right. It's like kind of less atomized or, or separated. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's an awareness. And it sounds like also, like you said, that the gear, it's, it's not so particular to a, spa a space anymore so that it's not working in isolation, that there's no, an no, opportunity no, to kind of... I mean, you used to have studios, if you bought a disc clavier, I, I forget what they cost. They were like $80,000 or something like this. So not everybody, not every studio just had one because they wanted to have it. If you had that kind of equipment, you know, at that time, uh, it, that was what your studio was built around. Right. Um, if you kept working with, I don't know, modular synthesis, there was a sound that comes out of modular synthesis. But today, so many people are working on digital with, the, uh, with um, you know, digital tools and, and very often the same, the same kinds of tools or similar plugins in the different softwares that, it's not so much, it's not so much an identifier anymore. Right. Now you mentioned, exist. I mean, there's, there's, okay. Yeah. It's true that, you know, if you go to Montreal, there's a, there's a particular, there's an acousmatic slant to it. There's a history there. There's, there's certain composers who have gone through there. There are composers who have gone there because of who was there that, you know, tends to emphasize the, the, the formal and sonic aesthetics of the work that they do for sure that's a that's a, that's a factor all i'm saying is that it's it's much less a factor today than it would have been say 10 15 years ago right now you mentioned you know the expansion of the categories uh, the addition of new new awards we're kind of staring toward the ends of 2021 here is there plans afoot for 2022 already like what's kind of on the horizon for the cec and for jeu de temps uh, more of the same. Yeah. <laughs> keep keep uh, on keeping the, on. The May yeah. is, sorry. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Exactly. Although, as I say, we have this new component with the thematic uh, awards, and uh, the other thing that I that I would also mention that's uh, came out in the in the course of the plans for 2022, but we're able to implement for this year. Um, so May first is the deadline each year. So we, you know, the project as is 
will go on again next year for 2022. So uh, we've already started putting a few small things in place for that. But the, one of the big things that's changing for 2022 is that we're doing a collaboration with CEMAS in Mexico, in Morelia, Mexico. Um, they've hosted, they've been a project partner before, as I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. for the, the, uh, the international concert component. And in 2003, the CEC collaborated with the Sonic Arts Network, which was at the time the UK's um, uh, National Association for Electroacoustic Practices. And in 2009, then we collaborated with uh, Degem, that's the German Institute, uh, Association for Electroacoustic Music, in 2010 with ACMA, the Australasian Computer Music Association. In each of those cases, there were submissions um, both from Canadians and people living in Canada, as well as those from or living in the, the, the partner country. Um, so we're doing the same thing next year with Mexico, and we're going to expand it uh, with CEMAS um, as the representative, as our, our partner. So it'll be open to uh, Latin American composers and sound artists and electroacoustic artists, uh, and again, young and emerging uh, who are from or living in Latin America, so Mexico south southwards. Um, CEMAS is a, a production venue, an education center, uh, and, and, and um, they have concerts each week. Oh, they will be having concerts again each week once they get started up again. They've gotten the, the, the it seems to have cleared up now so that they're, they're able to start getting back to doing some production and having, having uh, events there. Mm -hmm. um, so I spoke with Rodrigo Sigal, who's the director, the artistic director of CEMAS, uh, about the idea of adding a residency component. And it's been so popular amongst the people that we've talked to that, that we already have partners for this year um, that we're getting in place. Uh, a little bit more I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to hold back on. Sure, yeah. It in place, but it's, it's, it's been confirmed that we're moving ahead with a partner to give a residency to one of the artists who received an award or a prize this year. And so they'll submit a project proposal, a uh, short project proposal, and the partner will choose which project that they, they feel is gonna work best with their, their uh, facilities and their interests and their, and their programming. So that's, that's the, the other big thing for this year that's, that's really exciting that we're about to announce. So this is the first time that I'm mentioning it publicly. Sure. Uh, but we were able to confirm that just in the last couple of days to, to, to get the final okay on everything. So we're super excited about that. Wonderful. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to feature the award winners. Uh, JTTP.sonus.ca is the, the website, I'm remembering correctly? Exactly. Yes. Uh, Jeff, thanks very much for, for taking some time to join us on the, on the show, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, and thanks for, uh, for your support of the, of the project. We really appreciate it. Of course.
Right before the break, Pablo Girard and Joseph Sims with Esquisse d'un Sandbox, that is the composition competition winner from Jeu de Temps Times Play. My thanks to Jeff Chippewa for taking the time to talk about this year and what's been going on in the Canadian electroacoustic community. Uh, we are, as I kind of alluded to in my interview with Jeff, uh, going to duck into one more tradition here. Uh, I usually do play Stuart McLean's Dave Cooks a Turkey. Uh, in the lead up to Christmas next Friday, I won't be doing my show. Mr. Buckles, uh, who normally does his broadcast on Saturday mornings, is going to do uh, his Christmas Eve special in my time slot. So uh, I would encourage you to check that out uh, before we go after some Dave Cooks of Turkey. Might try to squeeze in one or two tracks from my personal long list because I should mention that uh, Jared McKediak and I. We'll be doing our 17th annual countdown show on December 29th. Uh, this year we're moving it off of the 31st because that happens to be a Friday and it happens to also be the last Friday that Shift Radio 
we'll be broadcasting. So uh, shout out to Mark Lacasse and to his former co-host Andre Bissek and all of the DJs who've uh, appeared on that show over the years. They're going to be wrapping up with a, a mega spectacular marathon edition. Uh, so our marathon top 20 countdown is moving to Wednesday the 29th. Uh, you can check out other programmers' top lists on umfm.com under the tab Programmer Picks. Keep it locked here on 11.5 UMFM. Now last year when Carl Lobier bought his wife Gerda, Martha Stewart's complete Christmas planner, <laughs> he did not understand what it was he was doing. Uh, on Christmas Eve, Carl found himself staring at a bag full of stuff that he couldn't remember buying. He, he wondered if he'd maybe picked up someone else's bag by mistake. And then he found a receipt with his signature on it. Why would he have paid $23 for a slab of metal to defrost meat when they already owned a microwave oven that would do it in half the time? Who, who could he possibly have been thinking of when he bought the ab machine? Although he did remember buying Martha Stewart's complete Christmas planner. It was, the, it was the picture of Martha Stewart on the cover that had drawn him to the book. A picture of Martha striding across her front lawn with a wreath made of chili peppers tucked under her arm. <laughs> Carl had never heard of Martha Stewart, but she looked like she was in a hurry, and that made him think of Gerda. So he bought the book never imagining that it was something uh, that his wife had been waiting for all her life. Carl was as surprised as anyone in the neighborhood last May when Gerda began the neighborhood Christmas group. Although not perhaps as surprised as Dave was when his wife Morley joined it. It's, it's not about Christmas, Dave, Morley said. It's about getting together. The members of Gerda's group, all women got together every second Tuesday night at a different house each time. They drank tea or beer, and the, the host baked something special, and they worked on stuff, usually until about 11. But that's not the point, said Morley. The point is getting together. It's about neighborhood, not about what we're actually doing, but there was no denying that they were doing stuff while they got together. It was May, and they were doing Christmas stuff. <laughs> it's wrapping paper, said Morley. You're making paper, said Dave? We're decorating paper, said Morley. This is hand-painted paper. Do you know how much this would cost? That was July. <laughs> in August, they took oak leaves and dipped them into gold paint and hung them in bunches from the kitchen ceiling. And then there was the stenciling weekend. The weekend Dave thought if he stood still too long, Morley would stencil him. In September, when no one could find an eraser anywhere in the house, Morley came home and she said, that's because I took them all with me. We're making rubber stamps. <laughs> You're making rubber stamps, said Dave? Out of erasers, said Morley. People don't even buy rubber stamps anymore, said Dave. There were oranges drying on the clothes rack in the basement. There were blocks of wax for candles stacked on the ping-pong table. And then one day... Morley said, do you know there's only 67 shopping days until Christmas? <laughs> now, Dave did not know this. Uh, had not, in fact, completely unpacked from last summer's vacation. 
and without thinking, he said, what are you talking about? And Morley said, if we wanted to get all our shopping done by the week before Christmas, we only have, she shut her eyes, 62 days left. Now, Dave and Morley usually start their Christmas shopping the week before Christmas, and suddenly there they were, with only 67 shopping days left, standing in their bedroom, staring at each other, incomprehension hanging in the air between them. It hung there for a good 10 seconds. And then Dave said something he had been careful not to say for weeks. He said, I thought this thing wasn't about Christmas. Which he immediately regretted saying. (laughs) Because Morley said, don't make fun of me, Dave. And she left the room. And then she came back like a locomotive. "Uh Uh-oh, thought Dave. (laughs) What, said Morley? I didn't say that, said Dave. You said, "Uh uh-oh, said Morley. I thought, uh uh-oh, said Dave. I didn't say, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Thinking, uh uh-oh, isn't like saying, uh uh-oh. They don't send you to jail for thinking you want to strangle someone. (laughs) What, said Morley. (laughs) She slept downstairs that night. (laughs) And she didn't say a word when Dave came down and tried to talk her out of it. Didn't say a word the next morning until Sam and Stephanie had left for school. And then she said, do you know what my life is like, Dave? Dave suspected correctly that she wasn't looking for an answer. (laughs) My life is a train, she said. I'm a train dragging everyone from one place to another, to school and to dance class, and now it's time to get up, and now it's time to go to bed. I'm a a train full of people who complain when they have to go to bed and and fight you when they have to get out of one. That's my job, because I'm not only the train, I'm the porter and the conductor and the cook and the engineer and the maintenance man, and I print the tickets and stack the luggage and clean the dishes, and if they still had cabooses, I'd be in the caboose (laughs) so I could pick up everything after the train went by. Now, Dave, Dave didn't want to ask where the train was heading. (laughs) He he had the sinking feeling it was one of those Civil War trains, (laughs) and that somewhere up ahead, someone had pulled up a section of the track. You know where the train is heading, said Morley. Yep, thought Dave. We're going off the tracks. Any moment now. What, said Morley. I said no, Dave said. I said I don't know where the train's going. Morley leant forward over the table. It starts at a town called First Day at School, Dave. And it goes to a village called Halloween and then through the township of Class Project and down the spur line called Your Sister is Visiting. And you know what's at the end of the track? You know where my train's heading? Dave looked at her kind of nervously. He didn't want to get the answer wrong. He would have been happy to say where the train was going if he knew he could get it right. Was his wife going to leave him? Maybe the train was going to D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Not at Christmas, he moaned. Exactly, said Morley to the last stop on the line, Christmas dinner, and this is supposed to be something I look forward to, Dave. This is supposed to be a vacation. Christmas dinner, said Dave, and attentively. It seemed a reasonably safe thing to say at the moment. And Morley nodded, and feeling encouraged, Dave added, with with a turkey and everything. But Morley wasn't listening to him. She said, and when we finally get through that week between Christmas and New Year, you know what they do with the train? They back it up during the night when I'm asleep so they can run it through all the stations one more time. And you know who you are, Dave? You're the guy in the bar car pushing the button asking for another drink. 
<laughs> and by the way Morley said that, Dave could tell that she still loved him. Uh, she didn't, for instance, say that he had to get off the train, or for that matter, even out of the bar car. But, but he did realize if he was going to stay aboard, he was going to have to join the crew. So the next weekend he said, why don't I do some of the Christmas shopping? Why don't you give me a list and I'll go and get some of the things for the Cape Breton cousins? Now, now Dave had never gone Christmas shopping in September before. <laughs> but when he came back, he said, that was okay. And Morley said, I'm sorry. It's just that I liked Christmas so much. I used to like Christmas so much. And I was thinking, if I got everything done beforehand, maybe I could enjoy it again. I'm trying to make it fun again. I'm trying to get control of it. That's what all this is about. And Dave said, well, what else can I do? And Morley looked at him and she said, on Christmas Day, Dave, after we've opened the presents, I want to take the kids to work at the food bank. And I want you to look after the turkey. <laughs> I can do that, said Dave. <laughs> Dave didn't understand until Christmas Eve when the presents were finally wrapped and under the tree and he and Morley were snuggled in bed and he was feeling warm and safe there beside his wife and he nudged her feet with his feet and she said, did you take the turkey out of the freezer? <laughs> and he went downstairs and couldn't, and couldn't find a turkey in the freezer. In either freezer and was about to call out, where's the turkey anyway? But stopped abruptly when the truth landed on him like an anvil and he understood that looking after the turkey, something he had promised to do, meant buying it as well as putting it in the oven. <laughs> he decided he'd wait downstairs for a while. <laughs> and when he went back up, Morley was asleep and he thought, I could wake her. Instead, he lay in bed and imagined in perfect detail the chronology of the Christmas day waiting for him. <laughs> imagined everything from the first morning squeal to the moment his family left to work at the food bank and then that moment when they came home with his mother-in-law who they would have picked up, all of them expecting turkey, saw the look on his wife's face as she sat at her table with the homemade crackers and the gilded oak leaves as he carried a bowl of spaghetti across the kitchen. <laughs> At 2 a.m., he was still awake. <laughs> but, but, but at least he had a plan. He would wait until they left for the food bank, then he'd take off and go to some deserted Newfoundland outport and live under an assumed name. <laughs> and at Sam's graduation, his friends would say, why isn't your father here? And Sam would say, one Christmas, he forgot to buy the turkey, so he had to leave. <laughs> Then at three, after rolling around for an hour, Dave got out of bed, dressed, and went looking for a 24-hour grocery store. It was either that or wait for the food bank to open. And though he couldn't think of anyone in the city who more in need of a turkey than he was, the idea that his family might spot him in line made that unthinkable. At 4 a.m. in the morning, on Christmas morning, with the help of a taxi driver named Mohammed, Dave found an open store and bought the last turkey there, 12 pounds, frozen as tight as a cannonball, grade B, whatever that meant. He was home by 5 a.m. and by 6.30 had the turkey more or less thawed. He used an electric blanket 
and the hair dryer on the turkey and a bottle of scotch on himself. As the turkey defrosted, it became clear that the grade B part was the cosmetic part. The skin on the right drumstick was ripped. To Dave, it looked as if the turkey had made a break from the slaughterhouse and dragged itself a block or two before it was recaptured and beaten to death. bird looked like it had died in a knife fight. <laughs> Dave poured another scotch and began to refer to the turkey as Butch. <laughs> if that had been the worst thing about the bird, that it was cosmetically challenged, Dave would have been happy. Would have considered himself blessed. Would have been able to look forward to this Christmas with equanimity. Might eventually have been able to laugh it off. The worst thing came later, after lunch, after Morley and the kids left for the food bank. Before they left, Morley dropped pine oil on some of the living room lamps. When the lamps heat the oil up, she said, the house will smell like a forest. Then she said, mother's coming. I'm trusting you with this, Dave. You have to have the turkey in the oven. Dave finished her sentence for her. He said, by 1.30, don't worry. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> the worst thing began when Dave tried to turn on the oven. Morley had never had cause to explain to him about the automatic timer, and Dave had never had cause to ask about it. The oven had been set the day before to go on at 5.30. Morley had been baking a squash casserole for Christmas dinner because she always does the vegetables the day before. And now, until the oven timer was unset, nothing anybody, least of all Dave, did was going to turn it on. At 3.30... In the afternoon, Dave retrieved the bottle of scotch from the basement and poured himself a drink. He knew he was in trouble. He had to find an oven that could cook the bird and cook it fast. But every oven he could think of had a turkey inside it already. Now, for 10 years, Dave was a technical director to some of the craziest acts on the rock and roll circuit, and he wasn't going to fall to pieces over a raw turkey. Inventors are often unable to explain where they get their best ideas from, and Dave is not too sure where he got his. Maybe he spent too many years in too many hotel rooms. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he topped up the scotch, and he phoned the Park Plaza Hotel, and he was given the front desk, and he said, do you cook special menus for people with special dietary needs? We're a first-class hotel in a world-class city, sir. We can look after any dietary needs. And Dave said, if somebody brings their own food because it's on a special diet, would you cook it for them? <laughs> of course, sir. Dave looked at the turkey, lying on the counter like a naked baby. Come on, Butch, he said, we're going out. <laughs> Morley had the car. Dave called a taxi. He stuffed the bottle of scotch in his pocket on the way out the door. The Park Plaza, he said, it's an emergency. He took a slug from the bottle in the back of the cab. The man at the front desk of the hotel asked if Dave needed help with his suitcases. No suitcases, said Dave, then turned breezily to the man behind him in line and patted the turkey, which he had dropped on the counter and was spilling out of its plastic bag, and said, only slightly slurred, just checking in for the afternoon with my check. <laughs> The, 
the clerk winced and Dave turned, wobbled, and peered at the man in line behind him. He was looking for approval. He, instead of approval, he found his neighbor, Jim Schofield, standing. <laughs> standing beside an elderly woman who Dave assumed must be Jim's visiting mother. And Jim didn't say anything. Tried, in fact, to look away, but he was too late, and their eyes met. And Dave straightened himself out and said, Turkey and the kids are at the food bank. I just brought Morley here so they could cook her up for me. <laughs> oh, said Jim, that explains everything. <laughs> I mean the turkey, said Dave. I bring it here every year. I'm alone. Dave held his arms out as if he wanted Jim to frisk him. And the man at the desk said, Excuse me, sir, and handed Dave his key. And Dave smiled at the man behind the counter, at Jim, at Jim's mother and walked toward the elevator, one careful foot in front of the other. And when he got there, he heard Jim calling him, and Dave turned, and Jim said, You forgot your chick. <laughs> Pointing to the turkey on the counter. The man on the phone from room service said, But we have turkey on the menu, sir. And Dave said, This is a, a, a special turkey. I was hoping you could cook my turkey. The man from room service told Dave the manager would call. Dave looked at his watch, and when the manager called, Dave knew this was his last and only chance. This man was going to either agree to cook his turkey, or he might just as well book the ticket to Newfoundland. <laughs> Excuse me, sir, said the manager. I said, I need to eat this particular turkey, said Dave. That particular turkey, sir, said the manager. Do you know, said Dave, what they put in birds today? No, sir, said the manager. He said it like it was a question. They feed them. Now, Dave had no idea what they fed them. He wasn't sure what he was going to go with this, just that he had to keep talking. They feed them chemicals, he said, and antibiotics and steroids and, and lard to make them juicier. I'm allergic to that stuff. If I eat any of that stuff, I'll have a, a heart attack or at least a seizure in the lobby of your hotel. Do you want that to happen? The man on the phone didn't say anything, so Dave kept going. I have my own turkey here. I raised this turkey myself. I butchered it myself. I butchered it this morning. The only thing this thing has eaten, Dave looked frantically around the room. What did he feed the turkey? Tofu, he said triumphantly. <laughs> Tofu, sir, said the manager. And yogurt, said Dave. It was all or nothing. The bellboy took the turkey and Dave gave him $20 and said, you have those big convection ovens? He said, I've got to have it back before 5.30. The bellboy was from Central America. All he said was, you must be very hungry, sir. <laughs> Dave collapsed onto the bed, didn't move for an hour and a half, which was when the phone rang. It was the manager. He said the turkey was in the oven. Then he said, you raised that bird yourself? It was a question. Dave said yes. There was a pause. The manager said, the chef says the turkey looks like it was abused. <laughs> Dave said, ask the chef if he's ever killed a turkey. <laughs> Tell him it was a fighter. Tell him to stitch it up. <laughs> the bellboy wheeled the turkey into Dave's room at quarter to six. They had it on a dolly covered with a silver dome. Dave removed the dome and gasped. It didn't look like any bird he could have cooked. There were white paper armbands on both drumsticks and a glazed partridge made of red peppers on the breast. He looked at his watch and ripped the paper armbands off and he scooped the red pepper partridge into his mouth and then he realized the bellboy was watching him and saw the security guard standing in the corridor. <laughs> the, the security guard was holding a carving knife. They obviously weren't about to trust Dave with a weapon. 
Would you like us to carve it, sir? J just get me a taxi, said Dave. What, said the guard? I uh, can't eat this here, said Dave. I, I have to eat it. Dave couldn't imagine where he had to eat it. <laughs> outside, he said. I have to eat it outside. He took out another $20 bill and he gave it to the bellboy and he said, I'm going downstairs to check out. You bring the bird and get the taxi. And he walked by the security guard without looking at him and said, careful with that knife. <laughs> and he got home at 6 o'clock and he put Butch on the table. The family was due back any minute and he poured himself a drink and he sat down in the living room and the house looked beautiful. It smelled beautiful. It was like a pine forest. My forest, said Dave. And then he said, uh-oh, and jumped up and got a ladle of turkey gravy and ran around the house smearing it on the light bulbs. <laughs> you do what you've got to do. There, he thought, and he went outside, and he stood on the stoop, and he counted to 50, and he went back in and breathed in, and the house smelled just like Christmas. And he poured himself another scotch, and he looked out the window, and he saw Morley coming up the walk with Jim Schofield and his mother. <laughs> we met them outside and invited them in for a drink. I hope that's okay. Of course, said Dave, I'll go get the drinks. And he said, Morley, could you come here a moment, please? There's something I have to tell you. Oh, oh, oh. 
I want to enforce for real good. In other words, I know that there are bad forces that bring suffering to others and misery to the world. But I want to be the opposite force. I want to be the force which is truly for good. All a musician can do is to get closer to the sources of nature and so feel that he is in communion with the natural laws. the spiritual expression of what I am. My faith, my knowledge, my being. When you begin to see the possibilities of music, you desire to do something really good for the people to help humanity free itself from its hang-ups. I want to speak to their souls. My goal is to live the truly religious life and express it through my music. If you can live it, there's no problem about the music because it's part of the whole thing. John Coltrane.
Thank you.